I think the passage is on the screen above me. I'm reading from the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, but please do follow along in whatever translation that you're using. And please do give uh, careful attention to the reading of God's Word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ending our reading there, may God's word dwell in our hearts richly. Please do keep your Bible open in that passage of Scripture as we make reference to it and as we look at it together. But let's uh, come before the Lord in prayer. Let's seek his face and his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray together. Father, we're reminded of the words of the psalmist, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word as we look at it now, Father, as we uh, seek to apply it to our lives and to understand it. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would give us uh, that understanding as we come to look at your son and, and, and him crucified and what that means for each and every one of us who's in this building, Father, and for everyone around this world, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to apply that to our hearts as we think about these things, that your spirit would be teaching us, Father, that you would continue to guide us into truth and into righteousness, Father. Father, we pray that you would uh, minister to your people this morning here. Uh, Father, for the children as they're taught your word in another part of this building, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for those who will uh, teach them, Father, that you will help them, that you will guide them, and that we would grow in our grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that glory and honor will be brought to him uh, for what he has done, for who you are, for what you're continuing to do in our lives and how you would continue to shepherd us and shadow us and uh, give us all that we need, Father. We praise you this morning and we pray that you would teach us for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. Those are the words of Wolfhard Pannenberg, a German theologian who passed away in, in 2014 at the age of 85. And skeptics of Christianity have long presented, haven't they, a multitude of reasons for not only denying the resurrection of Jesus, but also the historicity that Jesus lived on this earth as a man in Nazareth. And they've discredited and tried to the testimony of his followers. And there's many objections and obstacles throughout history that have sought to discredit the credibility and authority of the words of Jesus and his followers, hasn't there? Christianity Today ran a a survey in the year 2000 listed the top 10 common objections to Christianity. And right at the top of that list was Christians are hypocrites. Others included Christianity as a crutch. It's it's narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way to God. But underneath the reasons and rationales for rejecting who Jesus is and his message, beneath the obstacles and the objections, 
Those words I find so often ring true. Underneath the veneer of objections is this hard shell reality that if you believe the message of Jesus Christ, that he was sent by God, God's own son, died, lived a perfect life, died an atoning and and sacrificial death, you have to change the way you live. The gospel of Jesus brings change to the way you live your life. And that's what we find in Romans 12 and these opening verses. Paul has been, the apostle, has been making this impassioned, inspiring appeal to his readers and to us today to understand this reality of what God has done through his son, Jesus, and for that truth to transform how we live. Paul has been looking at those things as he writes to the Romans, how we're changed, how we're transformed by the, by the message and the gospel of Christ, how God has brought us into the fold of his loving kindness. But what do we do now? How do we navigate life under the sun in loving and serving Jesus Christ? Well, Romans 12 is Paul addressing the what we do now, how we're living that transformed life in believing in the message of Christ. We find the, the blueprint here, don't we, in these two verses, the schematic, if you like, of what God's plan is for transformation for his church, his people. And I want us to look at these verses briefly, look at them under these uh, three headings and bring some um, application at the end. And the first, uh, this was in a, in a PowerPoint, so if you, if you notice all these different sort of, there were transitions in it, but I think it transfers as a static slide. So, But the first point is this, is we find the motivation for transformation in the first point that Paul gives us. What is this motivation for transformation? Do you know, when I was in Bible college, um, I totted up all the essays that I had written, or that many student who is there full-time has to write, wrote over 40 essays over the course of three years. And if you're anything like me, um, when I start on an essay, I look at the word count, and it was usually like 3,000 words or whatever. And every single time I would think, I'm never, I'm never gonna reach 3,000 words. And then when you get halfway through it, you think, oh, do you know, maybe I'm gonna be okay. I've got about 1,500 words here. And then at the end, you think, who on earth put a word limit of 3,000 on this question? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Perhaps you're like that. Um, but if you're like me, you soon find out that it's, it's easy to write lots. And the real work in writing those essays is summarizing, keeping the most important bits in and taking out all the waffle and something I definitely still didn't get right even after three years. But you have to summarize and you have to do it carefully and you have to do it skillfully, don't you? Well, how do you summarize all of what Paul has said in Romans 1 to 11 till now? I don't know how I'd do it, but Paul does it here in the first verse of chapter 12. He summarizes that motivation for transformation down to one word, mercy. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. If you're following in the NIV, it says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. 
And you know, that's a theologically charged phrase. Paul is hearkening back to everything that has just come earlier in Romans 1 to 11. We don't have time to go through all that, but he highlights there, doesn't he, the gratitude that we as believers feel out of being chosen by God when we believed in him, how we're justified how we're changed, as he says in Romans 4, out of the divine work of the life of the Spirit. He says you were dead in your transgressions and sin, but now you've been made alive in Jesus Christ, Romans 8. And the wisdom of God, you now have, we all have, believers have this access to grace through faith in which we now stand in Romans 5. And Paul says, in light of these mercies, in light of all this, Paul makes this then, makes this appeal. In view of all that God has done, Paul is going to give these commands to his people, to his church, God's church. Paul's keen to show that this gospel grace and mercy that God has given us equals a gospel way of life. That's how Paul summarizes that motivation for living a gospel way of life. Mercies in view of God's mercy. Mercy is that motivation, isn't it? It's the very basis of living a life and serving Jesus Christ. You have to keep God's mercy in view. If you're following in the ESV, you can see it's the, it's the plural mercies. Uh, it's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, but it's translated in some translations slightly different. It's translated as the word sympathies. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, same word, mercies. Or in Colossians 3 and verse 12, it's translated as compassionate. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts. Again, the exact same word, just translated differently. Mercies, merciful hearts. Mercy, compassion, sympathy. It's translated differently because the word is multifaceted. Mercy is multifaceted, isn't it? All that we accomplish, all that we aspire to be in serving God and worshiping him, we have to keep in view God's mercy what he has done for us. Anything we seek to do in living the transformed life has to be in view of his mercy and his goodness. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the phrase, in view of God's mercy, it's a call to worship. We cannot truly worship God until we have fully understood and appreciated his mercy towards us. I think that's helpful and that's true. All of what we do, our justification, our acceptance, our adoption as sons, our forgiveness that we experience when we believe in Christ, the knowledge of sins forgiven and a conscience cleansed, the cleansing of sin, it's all accomplished, it's all applied in view of God's mercy, what he has done in sending his son Jesus Christ to be our savior, to be our Lord, to be our master in view of God's mercy. I remember um, listening to uh, Dale Ralph Davis. I remember he came over and spoke in the college uh, once, but 
listening to him and reading some of his books, he, he, he often uh, recalls a time when he, uh, in one of his previous pastorates, when he always wanted to bring a chisel to church and in the front of the communion table, like most communion tables, it says this do in remembrance of me. And he recalls times he always wants to bring a chisel and carve in uh, a new verse each week into the front of our, uh, under the communion table in the church he was in. And you know, wouldn't that be an appropriate text if we were to do that? Isn't that an appropriate verse? Or just that word, as we, even as we come in a short while to join around the Lord's table in view of God's mercy. We could carve that, couldn't we? Into the front of our communion tables. In view of God's mercy. This is why we do this. This phrase is the preface to everything we do in our life in service to God, in view of God's mercy. That's the motivation Paul gives for transformation. Keep in view God's mercy. And then secondly, we find the process of transformation. There are lots of different people in the world, isn't there, who offer um, transformation. There are books that are so often called self-help books. The promise If you follow their way, you'll be changed, you'll be the real you, you'll be the authentic you. They promise that, don't they? And when you break those self-help books down, the strategies very often fall into two different camps, don't they? The first is this, one focuses on the mind. You know, the self-help people say, change the way you think and you'll change the way you live. And the second focuses on well-being so often. The self-help strategy, focus on the body, eat the right things, change the way you exercise and you will be well, you will become what you want to be. Isn't it amazing that Paul's strategy is quite similar? But Paul doesn't offer self-help or well-being, but he does lay out a plan that involves something to do with your mind and something to do with your body. And his argument is fairly straightforward, isn't it? Living the transformed life, you have to do something with your mind and do something with your body. Notice what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I can't read that verse without mentioning uh, J.B. Phillips' uh, infamous uh, paraphrase of that verse. For perhaps young people, if you don't know who J.B. Phillips is, it was like an old person's version of the Message Bible. It was a paraphrase uh, of the New Testament. And he says this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That word conformed comes from that idea of modeling. Don't be modeled by what the world thinks, what the world thinks is acceptable, what the world thinks is pleasing and perfect. Don't conform to the way of the world. Paul's saying to the way the world values things, to the way the world evaluates things. As God's children, holy and beloved, we are to think differently. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say withdraw from society. Sure, he doesn't. He doesn't say go into a Christian hibernation. Uh, John Chapman says it best. He says this, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. And so it's not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes the danger. And we'll come back to apply that thought at the end, but the path to avoiding that conformity with the world is through, as Paul says, renewing your mind. 
do not be conformed, but be transformed. It's the word metamorphosis, being radically changed, just like a, a caterpillar is radically changed and becomes a butterfly. So the gospel brings radical change to a person's life. It's the same word that Matthew uses to describe Jesus on Mount Transfiguration, which is literally translated transfigured. He was radically changed before them. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, be transfigured, be transformed through the renewal of your mind. So that's the first part that Paul says in the process of transformation. Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But it doesn't end there. Paul goes on to talk about the body, doesn't he? He says, in view of God's mercy, verse 1, present your bodies as living, as a living sacrifice. You know, what does that mean? Do we have to lie on a wooden altar? Is there a physical place that we need to go to to do that? Well, if no, Paul is speaking simply here, isn't he? And he's simply talking about obedience. He's talking about how God calls us to obey him. Obedience is about doing what you know God wants you to do. And Paul describes that in terms of worship, sacrifice. Just like in the Old Testament, how an animal would have been presented to the temple to be sacrificed. So you present yourself in the same way of use to God as a living sacrifice. That's how Paul describes this process of transformation for us. What is sensible worship, he says, the renewal of your mind and to offer your body as a living sacrifice. I'm sure many of you have heard of the, the missionary Helen Rosevere, and I remember her speaking at the, a number of years ago at the uh, missionary convention in Bangor in Hamilton Road, Presbyterian. And I've listened to interviews of her online, and you know she speaks about this verse, and it stuck with me first hearing what she said about uh, Romans 12 and this verse about a living sacrifice. And she said, you know, the only problem with a living sacrifice is that so often it can crawl off the altar. The only problem with a living sacrifice is so often it can crawl off the altar. And when we look at our service to God as believers, so often that's the case in our own lives, isn't it? So often we crawl off that altar, if you like. We give ourselves to God, but so often we return to our old ways. So often we don't serve God with our mind and with our body. So often we go our own way. And yet we're called, aren't we? with the mercy that God has poured into our lives to continue to return to him in obedience and renewing our mind. So motivation for transformation, uh, mercy, the process of transformation, renewal of your body and mind as a living sacrifice. And then finally, we have the goal of transformation. And if we were to summarize it to one word, it would be wisdom. Paul is speaking about. The goal is that by keeping in view God's mercy, offering your whole being in service, rejecting the way of the world by renewing your mind, Paul says you will gain wisdom, verse 2, that you may be able to test and approve what is the will of God, what is good, perfect, and acceptable. What is the wisdom that Paul says we gain? What's the knowledge of God's will for our lives? 
Kevin DeYoung, in one of his books, uh, helpfully describes how the Bible speaks about, or uses that phrase, the will of God, and what that means in the Bible, as you see on the thing. He says, speaks about God's will in three ways. We have God's will of decree, don't we? This is what God has decreed will happen. We know that God is sovereign, that he is the controller of the universe, creator of all things, that he's all-knowing, that he sovereignly decrees how things should be. And we have verses, don't we, like Ephesians 1 and verse 11. Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. His will of decree is fixed. It's final. Can't be thwarted. Nothing on earth can change God's will of decree. But the Bible also speaks about God's will of desire. God's will is what you and I as Christians ought to do and what we ought not to do. And so we have verses like 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 and 18. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. But we know we don't do that all the time, isn't that right? It's God's will that we do that, but it's not something we do. It's not decreed into our lives. It's not that it's fixed and can't be thwarted. We have different desires. We stray away from that type of worship, don't we? So often we don't pray, we don't rejoice always, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. But the Bible speaks of God's will as his will of desire, what he he wants for his children. And then lastly, God's will of direction. And when we think of God's will, we often think in this category. We think about our own lives. What am I going to do? Perhaps we ask ourselves questions. What job I'll get? What university should I go to? Whom should I marry? Where should I live? And we talk about God's will of direction in terms of knocking on doors, inner impressions, Bible verses that uh, stick out to us. Sometimes we feel a peace about situations and we interpret our circumstances, don't we, as uh, God speaking to us and through reading his words. All these things that help form our thoughts in making decisions about our life. And so the Bible speaks of God's will in those three ways. His will of decree, his will of desire, and God's will of direction. And you know, the beauty of what Paul's saying here is that when we truly acknowledge God's will of decree, acknowledge that by the mercies of God, he sent his son born into this world to be that atoning, sacrificial lamb of God. That was his will of decree. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. When we acknowledge God's will of decree, and when we walk in God's will of desire, offering our bodies as living sacrifices as we're commanded to do, not being transformed to the image of this world or being conformed, but being transformed by the renewal of our our minds. When we walk in his will of desire, we are in the center of God's will for our lives and our direction because we're walking in wisdom according to his will. Acknowledging his will of decree and following in his will of desire. And through that, Paul says, we have an assurance of the good, acceptable, perfect will of direction. And so when life throws at us all the uncertainties, the tragedies, the difficulties, we have a measure of assurance as his people, don't we? A measure of confidence that when we're walking in God's will of decree, when we're acknowledging that will of decree and walking in his will of desire, 
We know that God has put us on the path that we're on. That we are walking in his way, even if that means walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Even if we're walking through trial and difficulties. That's the assurance we have. And if you're concerned, perhaps, if you're asking those questions of direction in your life, well, you can know confidently from the Lord that if you believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came into the world to save sinners, trust in him, serve him, acknowledge him as Lord and Master, if you follow his commandments, walking in love, obeying him, bearing one another's burdens, meeting together as God's people, then we're in the center of God's will for our lives. And if there are things in your life that are going to hinder that, then you can know with assurance that's not the direction God wants you to go. That's not going to be the direction he's going to want to push you towards. So if perhaps going to that university is going to mean you won't be going to church, you can rest assured that perhaps it's God's will that you don't go to that university because it's going to hinder his will of desire in your life. And I find Paul's words so helpful for then navigating those difficulties in those lives that life throws at us. And so we have the motivation for transformation in view of God's mercy, mercy, his sympathy, his compassion, the process of transformation through the renewal of our mind, offering your body as a living sacrifice and the goal of transformation so that we may understand the will of God, what is acceptable, what is good, what is perfect. Very briefly, I know our time's away, but just a few basic points of application. And here's the first. Real Christianity is about being transformed, not merely informed. So there's so many people who today think that being a Christian is merely the sum of its parts. It's having the right beliefs. Like me, it's, it's thinking you have this mental ascent, like I was describing um, earlier. It's having this mental ascent that we think that God, as long as he's up there, surely that's all that's required without it ever making an impact in our lives. But being a Christian is much more than that. We need to be informed, of course, but it can never end there. We must be transformed by the gospel. You know, when I became a Christian, I had been informed for quite a while before I was transformed. I knew the right beliefs, but it didn't touch my heart. It didn't change my ways. And when I truly realized who Jesus is and what it means, I was transformed. I realized that my living my own way was, was deeply insulting to God, dismissive of his grace and put me under his wrath. I belonged to God because he created me. My desires, my emotions when I believed in Christ changed my affections toward him, changed. I saw things differently. I believed in the Bible. I had a, a, a desire and a want to meet with God's people to worship together. You know, John Ortberg Uh, says this, if we cannot be transformed, we will settle for being informed or conformed. And being informed or even conformed is not true and saving faith. It's being transformed that brings life. 
And so real Christianity is about being transformed. And secondly, living a transformed life is life long. When you believe in Christ, you're transformed in an instant. We believe that, don't we? When we trust in God, he has made us new. As Paul says, behold, the old is gone and now the new has come. We're justified in an instant when we believe in Christ and repent of our sins. We are changed and brought into the fold of God. But transformation of our lives is a lifelong task. Renewing your mind and offering yourself as a living sacrifice is lifelong. It's a lifelong endeavor. I'm sure you've already read the words of George Whitfield. The renewal of our natures is a work of great importance. It's not to be done in a day because we not only have a new house to build up, but we've an old one to pull down. That's what the Bible calls sanctification, being made more like Jesus. And it doesn't happen overnight. You know, the Christian life can, can feel like two steps forward and five steps back, doesn't it? In our spiritual walk, so often we, we, we fail, we make that progress, and then there's regress and progress and regress. And God calls us, even in those that times, to continue to serve and follow him. Continue to worship him. Continue to offer your body as a living sacrifice, even when you crawl off that altar. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep in view the mercy of God. May that be our motivation, whatever we do, to always keep in view the mercy of God. As Jerry Bridges um, often said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's one way to renewing your mind. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Renew your mind by bringing into today what God has decided in the heavens. Now, as believers, we are his children, made perfect, holy, loved, accepted. All of this, Paul says, is your spiritual service to him. And what does Paul mean? Well, Christian service and Christian worship, it's not just a one-hour activity that we do each week on a Sunday, but rather it's 24 hours, seven days a week. The kind of worship God wants from his people is whole life worship. It's not just what we do on a Sunday. Don't hear me out, or don't hear me wrong. It includes what we do on a Sunday. But it doesn't stop there. God's call on our lives is to worship him, to serve him, to offer our bodies, to renew our minds uh, so that we may be, uh, understand what is the uh, will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So the motive, motivation for transformation, keep in view God's mercies, the process, the renewal of your mind, the offering of your body, the goal that we may become wise, understanding what the will of God is. Let's pray, and then I'll hand over back to Joel for our final hymn. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mercy and grace that you have poured down into our lives. We recognize that so often we fall short of the way that we are to walk. 
We recognize that we go through times of difficulty and of trial, but we can trace your hand of grace as we look back over our lives and your hand of mercy in our lives, Lord, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for this motivation to keep looking to the mercy that you have given to us. Father, that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, offers that free, accepted grace if we come to him and put our trust in him. Praise you for that, Father. And we pray that you will help us in this task of transformation, of sanctification that we would not be conformed to the image of this world, that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that we would offer ourselves in sacrifice and service to you and to your people. Help us in this regard. May your spirit be at work in our hearts. And as we come to remember you in the way that you have appointed in a short while, uh, a very physical uh, image of how we keep in view the mercy that you've given us. Father, we pray that you'll bless our time there as we take of the bread and take of the wine. And may you uh, continue to bestow that mercy and grace upon us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.